You're listening to episode number 171 of the Inspiration Place podcast. Today, we're talking all about words that sell and the best advice from five top copywriters. So for that, stay tuned. Today's episode is sponsored by my free ebook, The Artist Profit Plan. Discover the five things you don't need to build a profitable art business plus the five that you do. To get your hands on it, go on over to shulmanart.com forward slash profit. It's the Inspiration Place podcast with artist Miriam Shulman. Welcome to the Inspiration Place podcast, an art world insider podcast for artists by an artist, where each week we go behind the scenes to uncover the perspiration and inspiration behind the art. And now, your host, Miriam Shulman. Well, hey there, it's Miriam Shulman, your curator of inspiration and host of the Inspiration Place podcast. You're listening to episode number 171. I am so grateful that you're here. Today, we're talking all about what to put in your emails to sell more art. We've been talking a lot on this podcast about writing more emails. So recently, I had on Teresa Heath Waring about why you need an email list. A few weeks ago, we discussed Matisse's selling secret. I'll make sure I'll link to both of those episodes in the show notes. Now that you understand why an email is so important, you might be staring at a blinking cursor wondering what the heck you should say. That's why I've gathered up the best of the best advice from top copywriters. I pulled the highlights from five different interviews I did. These are folks whose job is to write words that sell and they get paid huge bucks for it. So you're going to love this episode. Grab a pen because you're going to want to take notes. In this episode, you're going to discover why your art collectors want to hear from you and often how to inject your personality into everything you write and why you don't need to use flowery language to sell your art and what really works. First up is the founder of Talking Shrimp and co-creator of The Copy Cure. She's a copywriting expert who helps entrepreneurs find the perfect words to express and sell what they do in a way that gets them to be paid to be themselves. Through her work with hundreds of clients, including online biggies like Marie Forleo and Amy Porterfield, She's seen firsthand that putting you into your copy. Here's the one and only Laura Belgray. So I'll have a lot of artists say, only my friends buy my art. And the first thing I'll say to them is that's probably because the, those are the only people who know about it, right? You know, because they're not emailing or putting themselves out there or not. But the whole point is when you're writing these emails, and that's what we're going to dig into today, is you want your collectors to feel as if you are writing to them as a friend. Like if they say, oh, only my friends collect my art, you could solve that easily by making thousands of friends with your email. You make those people your friends, they become your friends, and then they will buy your art. Here's what I hear from people. And I have my ideas. And I'm talking about like the clients who I coach who want to sell their art. They say they hate writing emails because they feel like they're talking to their computers. So what advice do you have specifically for those artists? Yeah, I think that you want to picture a person who is your ideal collector. It's probably a friend, especially if you've claimed that only your friends collect your art and a friend who 
maybe is such a fan of yours, such a fan of your art that they always want first dibs, Mm. anything that you put out there and are furious if you've sold it to somebody else without telling them about it. Think of that person that you love so much that you feel comfortable around who just loves everything that you do. If you need to, you can open an email from your regular, like your regular email client on your desktop or or wherever you compose an email, right? So I use Mac mail. So I open up a Mac email if I'm having trouble, if I'm having trouble picturing that one person. And I start an email to them, but truly to them. Like what would I write to this person? In what language? So I don't start to make it newslettery. You know, I don't have a big intro. You know, if it were you, Miriam, I would just say like, you know, what's shaken if I'm writing about art, you know, just, just finish this piece. I know you're going to want to see because you were so mad at me last time when I didn't tell you about it. It is, if I do say so, pretty spectacular. Do you want to come see it? You know, I just like put it in the words that I would use with a person that I like and know. And then maybe you dress it up, then maybe you, you know, put more into it. But when you start it off in the right tone with the right person in your mind's eye, it's going to be a lot easier. So what is something that will make any email scream? It's a newsletter. Aha. Oh, I love that question. If you use title case in your subject line, meaning the first letter of each word is capitalized, as it is in a title. That screams newsletter. It's businessy. You would never capitalize the first letter of each word if you wrote an email to a friend. Yeah. You capitalize the first word, if any of them. Sometimes we're sloppy when we write to our friends. And especially now that we communicate with the people we, who we're close to so much in text. Text is a place where even our, our punctuation drops off. We get almost intentionally sloppy because it, it now looks rude and curt to use punctuation and to be formal there. So you kind of want your subject lines to mirror that informality. You want to make sure that you're not using title case. And you will see marketers, if you're subscribed to a lot of things, you will see marketers using title case. You might find yourself turned off by it now that you heard this. Some of them get away with it because they have loyal followings and they've been doing it for years and people love their emails so much. But I I know most of them, like when I see those, I'm just like, eh. I don't need to open that today. Yeah, It's not to me. It yeah. doesn't feel like it's to me. It's a, from a business to a business and I don't need to read it. What is your advice you have for putting in more personality into emails? So you want to sound conversational. You want to mirror the way you talk. You want to read your stuff out loud and say, does this sound like a person talking? Does it sound like me talking? Is this the way I would actually say it? Is this the slang that I would use? So you you want that same tone, that same conversational feel in your writing, make it sound like a person. And then my favorite little trick for adding personality, for injecting some flavor is something that your artists are familiar with, painting a picture. So I like to use concrete details, not to say that Jackson Pollock was not a great artist, but if Jackson Pollock were writing, his writing would not be as good. If his paintings were writing, it wouldn't be as good because they are abstract They're general, you know, it's a mass, it's a blob. Whereas you want to be very figurative and clear in your writing. You want to use concrete details that paint a picture when we're reading. So for instance, instead of saying, we met up and had a conversation, that's way more interesting if you say, we met on a bench and talked over tuna sandwiches. It shows setting, it shows what was the tone, what was the feeling of this meeting. Like we met and had a conversation, we don't know. We met on a bench and talked over tuna sandwiches, says it was maybe really informal and intimate. 
it was somewhere outside, maybe where you didn't want the other person to make a scene. Like there's so much built into those concrete details and we can picture it. For instance, you see a lot of people talking in big generalities, especially when they're telling their life story. They'll say something like, you know, for a long time, I was in a very dark place. It was the lowest low of my life, but I came out of it and I, you know, I found myself on the other side with a whole new attitude. And that tells us nothing. It's general, it's blah. We don't know what they went through. Whereas if they said, you know, for three months of my life, I lived in unwashed sweats, eating nothing but Doritos from the bag and stalking my ex on Facebook, we know what kind of low they went through. If you think about Norman Rockwell, who did beautiful illustrations and portraits, every single one of his paintings tell a story. You know exactly who that kid is or who that dentist is or who that couple is. All those little juicy details that he includes is what makes his art so compelling. And that does not mean that art has to be representational to be compelling. But if you are making representational art, you should be telling a story with it. Right. And your writing, I think, should always be representational. That's how you make it compelling. If yeah. You don't have to tell every detail, but one perfect detail can make something pop, make it come alive for us and, right. and tell the whole story. Next up, we're featuring content strategist, author of the best-selling Kindle ebook, Make a Killing with Content. Listen to advice from my friend, the fabulous Lacey Boggs. What is content marketing? My definition is that content marketing is anytime you are having a conversation with your potential customers with the idea that it might eventually turn into a sale. So for that definition, that's pretty broad, but that includes blog posts, podcasts like this one. It could be a tweet. It could be an Instagram post. It could be an actual physical conversation you're having at an art show. But anytime you're having a conversation that you intend to eventually turn into a sale, I would consider that content marketing. So for artists, I think you have a couple of different angles you can take. So sometimes artists will share behind the scenes type information where they show like the progress of a piece being created, or they'll show behind the scenes of their studio or setting up a show or things like that. So that would be one option. Another one would be talking about sort of the, the inspiration or the meaning behind a piece of work. If your work has any kind of deep meaning or inspiration that comes from elsewhere outside of the picture that we might not be able to see just from the, the piece of art itself, that's a great thing to talk about. And sometimes artists can be personality brands as well. So sometimes it's just talking about what's on your mind, literally what you had for lunch, where you went for a walk, what you're doing with your kids, because all things being equal, we buy from people we know, like, and trust. Yeah. And all things being unequal, we buy from people we know, like, and trust. So the more you can share your personality, the more your audience will learn to like you and trust you. And your art becomes that much more significant to them when they feel like they're kind of friends with you and they have a window into your personality. Yeah, one thing I, I noticed some very successful artists do, which I struggle with a lot, and it's not just artists, but people who have big personalities online who are, who are successful, they are really willing to get vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Like they'll share their infertility struggles or their breakups or their heartaches, almost to the point where I feel a little bit uncomfortable. <laughs> and yet it really seems to work for them. Do we have to 
be that vulnerable with our audiences? What's your opinion on that? As you say, not everybody is going to be comfortable with being that vulnerable. I think also there's a lot of people who worry about crazy people out there. Like the more popular you become, the more crazies come out of the woodwork. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to share every detail of your life. No, I don't even like sharing when I go on vacation. I'm afraid people are going <laughs> to rob my house. Right. Totally. I talk sometimes about brand stories which is where you come up with a a set of stories or a set of topics that you're willing to share and interested in sharing and being vulnerable about. And so like, whereas I might not ever talk about like my marriage or issues Mm. with my family like that, for me, I've drawn the line where I'm happy to talk about things that happen in my business. My business is pretty much an open book. So I do get vulnerable about like, Hey, I tried this thing and it didn't work and it really stank. You know, like Mm. I'll get very vulnerable about that, but I'm not going to tell you if like I'm having whatever issues in my marriage or with my child or anything like that, because that's not part of my brand. Their stories are their stories. So even if it's causing me personal pain, if one of them is sick or, or something happens or something with my husband, it's their stories too. I'm very mindful of not sharing other people's stories. Absolutely. But just kind of as an example, you could be vulnerable as an artist in different ways. So if you were to go through a period of artist block where you just didn't have any creativity or you were struggling with a piece and you couldn't make it work, those are the sorts of things you might choose to be vulnerable with. Yes. Whereas you might not share your kids' stories or your husband's story or anything like that about your personal life. There are still ways you can be vulnerable within your brand. Mm. And I'm not going to lie, being vulnerable, those are the blog posts that will get the most comments, the most likes, the most retweets, because we, as humans, we like it when other humans open up and are real with us, right? Right. So I would absolutely never try to manufacture that sort of thing. Mm. But if you run into those problems or or even just hiccups in your professional life or, or wherever you've drawn that line for your brand, it is valuable in some sense to share it even if it's sharing it after the fact. So you can say like, this happened and here's how I overcame it. Mm. Uh, that can be good too, like because sometimes things are too immediate and we, we don't have enough distance from them to share them with the world. I like the way you talked about dialing your personality up to 11 because I think what some people do, and this is myself included when I first started out, is you don't think you're supposed to dial it up. You kind of feel you need to dial it down. Yeah, you know, I have a very strong New York accent. I'm like this Jewish girl from New York and I, I interrupt people and I make jokes and I used to dial that back a lot. And now I'm just like, oh no, I'm just lean into it because people are going to love me or they're not going to love me. It helps them self-select. Yes. There's certainly a case to be made that somebody could enjoy your art if they didn't enjoy you personally. <laughs> but mm. at the same time, I think there's an even stronger case that When people connect with you on a personality level like that, they're probably even more likely to like your art. So the email really is the main thing that is the storyteller. And you don't have to create a brand new story every time you have Instagram, Facebook, and email that can be the same story. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I think this is such a funny thing about our egos as human beings because we assume that like, oh, well, I can't tell the same story on Facebook and Instagram because people are going to be like, oh, I saw that already. But the truth of the matter is 
A, nobody's paying that close of attention. No, no one's hanging on to your every word. <laughs> yeah. And one other little thing about email is I always suggest to people that you have no more than one topic per email. Oh, I um, like for that. For a while, it was very common to have emails that had lots of sections. Right. Where it had lots of different stuff. And I think that our attention spans just do not hold up for that. Unless you're like the New York Times. Probably my best words of wisdom are simply that keep trying, keep writing, you don't have to have everything perfect in order to post a blog or send out an email. The wonderful thing about the fact that these are a serial channel is that you get to try again next week. So don't let it, your perfectionism around words hold you back. Just post that blog post. Go ahead and send that email. If it doesn't work, that's okay. That's data to help you improve for the next time. Rather than waiting for everything to be perfect, go ahead and just hit the button and send it. Our next copywriter's motto is creative integrity and profit are not meant to be mutually exclusive. Here's Kimberly Houston. What what would you say to that question in, in terms of writing the copy for the actual art pieces? I've seen it sometimes as long as almost a full blog post or as short as two or three lines. I think shorter is generally better as long as, again, you get some narrative in there about the work. So not just this is, you know, 11 by 15 and it comes in blue and gray or whatever. Well, hopefully it doesn't come in blue or gray. Yeah. (laughs) But when I have not put stories on there, I've had collectors say, I like this, but where's the story? Like if they're used to buying with the story, they'll ask me, what's the story? What's Mm -hmm. behind this? People who collect art find artists fascinating. They want to know the backstory. They want to know the backstory about the artist and about the piece of work. So I think artists often forget people want to know about that stuff. They really do. I think people just prefer more conversational story based. And I don't know if that's because of social media or if that's always been true. Oh, conversational, I definitely think so. I mean, I think it's not artists. In fact, I've seen more people in corporate kind of settings do this, but copy, when you go to a website and the copy is very formal and not conversational, it just doesn't pull you in. Online, there's that natural barrier between the website and the person viewing the website because you're not having a direct one-on-one with somebody, a, a person in person. We always have to remember that that barrier is there and what helps sort of ease that, at least to some degree, is having conversational copy. Or, you know, you've gone to websites where you read the website and you feel like you know the person. Yeah. And that's a good thing. So conversational copy is definitely the way you want to go. Is there anything that you can say is like a big mistake you've seen artists make in terms of writing their copy? Yes. I think the biggest one is writing in the third person. Mm. That happens not just with artists. It happens with a lot of people. But I think it's especially true with artists because... Frankly, I think in art school, of those of artists who went to art school, that's what they're taught to do. Mm. They're taught to write in the third person. You know, like Miriam Shulman is an artist who does this and this and her influences or this, that, and the other. And again, that creates even more of a barrier. I was having this conversation with an artist friend of mine a couple of weeks ago that people already feel when they're buying art, right? Especially if they go in person in a gallery, they already, a lot of us already feel a little insecure because we don't feel like we have enough knowledge to be a real collector. Mm. So if we're being talked to in this really 
esoteric language that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's just kind of a turnoff, I think. So, right. But I've seen that a lot, writing in the third person, which I would say don't, don't ever do that. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah. And, and I actually follow a lot of artists. One of my pet peeves or turnoffs is I like whether it's a copy for Instagram or a blog post or a newsletter that's being sent to me. I get really turned off when I feel like they are writing to the masses Mm -hmm. and they'll use words like, Hey, you guys. I was like, wait a minute. I thought this letter, I prefer when I feel like it's coming just to me. Well, this is kind of getting off topic a little bit about saying, you know, I can't send a monthly newsletter because I've got nothing to write about. I'm like, are you kidding me? You can write about your process. You can write about your inspiration. There's so many things as an artist you could write about that's going to be interesting to collectors. About pretend like you're you're talking to your best friend about your week last week. You know, you spent some time in the studio and you saw this thing and it made you want to do this, you know, just whatever you would be talking about, about your your influences or your again, your process. People love to see artist process. Yeah, I think that's really so, great advice. Yeah. Definitely. But they like the process but less technical. Unless they're an artist themselves, they don't necessarily need to hear about that. I think even as an artist, I don't always need to hear about that. Like I was in mm-hmm. Provincetown with my family and we were in an, a studio and the artist was saying how he discovered the caulking and this and that. And even as an artist, I wasn't <laughs> interested. I just wanted to hear, well, why did you paint the tree instead of yeah. a flower? You yeah. know, that's what I wanted to hear. You know, like, <laughs> not like, whoa, you just, you know, you stuck the oil paint in this thing and squeezed it out. It's like, no, I don't, I'm not interested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you're right. There, there's such a thing as, as too much of that. It's like yeah. learning how the sausages are made, you know. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Tell me how they're seasoned. Our next expert specializes in emails that are fun to read and more addictive than Netflix. The one and only Tarzan K. The thing I hear more than anything else, Tarzan, they don't want to bother people. That doesn't work. When people join your email list, they are actively saying, yes, I would like to hear from you. So when you collect these email addresses and then they don't hear from you, it sends the message that you are not consistent and you are not a serious business person. Mm. You've got to reframe that. Like rather than like, what's going to happen if I email my list? Like, oh my God, what's going to happen if you don't? That's yes. actually a lot worse. So yeah. they do want to hear from you. And there are plenty of studies to show that people do want to get emails from their favorite brands at least once a week. Like there's plenty of stats behind it. Let's examine like, your own feelings about email marketing. Like, do you hate the emails in your inbox? Probably you don't hate all of them. Some of them you probably don't like. So take note of why you don't like those and you're not going to send emails with the big flashing button at the top that says 10% off. And the other ones that you really do like, that you enjoy from week to week and get excited about when they land in your inbox, like what's going on there? Maybe you could be that person. Maybe you could be that bright spot in someone else's inbox that they're like, oh, Oh my gosh, a new email from Miriam. I wonder what this is. They feel they have to be this, like they have to be the best and they have to send the best email and everything has to be perfect because their mother said so, you know, or whatever, whatever their story is, they're telling themselves things have to be. The response to that email when I messed up was like, I've never had so many email responses. Wow. And people were so grateful to see my humanity and that yeah. I also make mistakes. And 
it gave them permission to try things and make mistakes. Like you will not be successful in business if you're walking around all day long trying to not make mistakes. You are going to make mistakes. You're going to make so many embarrassing mistakes and fall on your face so many times. Like you just have to get up and keep going. That's what makes a successful business owner. Finally, Daniel Wall is the best kept secret until now. Her elegant, narrative-driven, and conversion-focused copy has brought in tens of millions in sales for clients, which is why she's otherwise known as the launch expert. That limiting self-belief, Danielle, about writing flowery language. It's, you know, I have to make something that is super compelling and super hypey and sounds like the best thing in the world and go on and on, it has to be perfect. Mm. It has to, you know, sound amazing. I never asked them what they mean by that, but I've heard it several times, that exact phrase. I think they meant like sugary when they talk about the art that has all these extra adjectives and words. And it's funny it because- it could be what you're saying with the perfectionism. I mean, that could be it too. Well, because extra adjectives and saying, you know, this is all the superlatives, this is the best. That's actually the opposite of what you want to do in copy. My background is in creative writing. So every word that you're writing should be there for a reason. Yeah. So you don't have to put in lots of extra words that don't need to be there. The other cool thing about writing to sell whether it's more of your art or courses, is that simple language works. But there's got to be some happy medium between the belief that I have to write flowery language and then the belief that I just have to put the name of the course and a price. So absolutely, there's somewhere in between. The way that I like to talk about it is talking about a bridge that you're taking someone across. On one side of the bridge is someone whipping out their credit card and going, yes, please take my money. The other side of the bridge are those people, your ideal collectors, your ideal people waiting over there for you to take them across. And it's your job with the words that you use to build that bridge for them and make it really, really easy for them to walk across. So how do you do that? How do you do that? It's a very good question. So how do you do that, Danielle? Where your ideal collectors are right now. Where are they? What are they feeling? What are they experiencing? What do they want? Where are they painting that picture? It's interesting that you bring up this concept of objections. Yeah. Because they're always going to be with any buying decision or any decision, really, they're going to be objections that come up in your mind. What I like to do with my clients is an exercise of thinking through and making a list of all of the things that your ideal customer, student, client needs to believe in order to buy. What do they need to believe? It could be things big or small. Make that list. They need to believe that they can do it. They need to believe that it's going to be emotionally rewarding. They need to believe they don't have to get involved. All of those things are your objections. And then once you have that list, as you go or writing your description, let's say, or writing your posts, you can answer them in a way that just feels natural. Okay, I hope you enjoyed the advice from all those wonderful women. We've included links to their interviews in the show notes and the other interviews I talked about. You can find all that we talked about at shulmanart.com forward slash 171. 
And don't forget, if you liked this episode, then you're going to love the freebies I got for you. So you can get your little goodie bag, the Artist Profit Plan ebook. Get that at shulmanart.com forward slash profit. Whether your goal is to profit from your passion or to get more recognition for your art, I've got you covered. All right, my friend, make sure you hit that plus or the follow sign in your podcast app. I don't want you to miss a single episode. And if you're feeling extra generous, I would love a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you so much for being with me here today. I'll see you the same time, same place next week. Stay inspired. Thank you for listening to the Inspiration Place podcast. Connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash shulmanart, on Instagram at shulmanart, and of course on shulmanart.com. 